Father in heaven, today is indeed a good day. We pray, though, that you'd help us to be able to see that even from this part of your word, from very long ago, it prepares us for why this day is good. We pray you'd help us um, have clear hearts and minds. We, help us by your, uh, we pray that by your spirit you'd help us understand this word and that we might be thankful as we walk out of here today for all that Jesus has accomplished for us. We pray, Father, that you'll bless us in this for your glory and in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Today we remember a man who has been cut off. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I'm speaking of now former Australian cricket test captain Steve Smith. Now, if you're not friends with an Aussie on Facebook or you haven't been following the news of late, let me explain. The sport of cricket in Australia is one of our idols. And last week, someone threatened to defile that idol. And it was the worst of betrayals. Our very own captain of the team was caught cheating on camera, tampering with the ball. In a press conference right after the game on Saturday night, last Saturday, he admitted his offence. And then the judgment came down on him swiftly. The news media went into a frenzy. His actions and a few of his teammates he led in this brought disgrace and humiliation upon our country. Those were the words in the papers. Wow. Our Prime Minister of Australia said, We all woke up this morning shocked and bitterly disappointed by the news. It seemed completely beyond belief that the Australian cricket team had been involved in cheating. And then within 48 hours, judgment fell again on Smith because he had defiled the game we love so much, he is going to be banned from playing the game for 12 months. Cut off because he was unclean and he had defiled himself. And the gods of cricket would have nothing to do with him. Now, in a way, this story from the past week highlights some similarities with our passage this morning. The book of Numbers may be a book dealing with events three and a half thousand years old. And yet, what it speaks of still resonates with our world today. Knowingly or not, the idea of being cut off for tainting and corrupting a relationship is not unfamiliar. And yet at the same time, our passage in Numbers is remarkably different, not only because it deals with a different subject matter, but also because it gives someone like Steve Smith a totally different ending. There is something in this passage that if we work hard at it and work through it, we'll see points to something even greater and more hopeful. By way of brief background, to this passage. The book of Numbers is set at a time where the nation of Israel is in the wilderness. They're camped at Mount Sinai. They've arrived at Mount Sinai after having spent 400 years in the land of Egypt. And God intervened to set them free with supernatural, miraculous uh, miracles uh, 
bringing them out of Egypt, right? The ten plagues that came down on Egypt. He split the Red Sea in two so that they could walk across on dry ground. They came to Mount Sinai with the thunder and the lightning. Moses has received the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets. Now, by now, Moses and Israel have already received a whole bunch of laws in the book of Leviticus. And the book of Numbers carries on with some more of those commands. And the command that we're looking at this morning is a neat summary and a repetition of a whole bunch of commands that you can find in the book of Leviticus, chapters 13 to 15. I chose Numbers 5 because it's only four verses. I didn't want to do three chapters. Now, this is what the command says. Have a look with me again at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp. Now before we do some hard work on this almost 3,000 year old command, let me say a quick word about leprosy mentioned here. Leprosy, otherwise known as Hansen's disease, is not just a skin disease. It's a long-term infection of the nerves that often results in a, uh, appears to affect the skin. Leviticus 13, which deals with this issue in way more detail, and the symptoms there indicate that it's not the same as what we understand today as leprosy. Right, so when you read leprosy in these laws, or when I mention or refer to leprosy in this message, it's more of a catch-all phrase for any kind of skin disease. If you're a medical student, look up the conditions psoriasis, favus, and leukoderma, and that's most likely what's being referred to here. Now, our world of modern medicine is a wonderful common grace that God gives to us today. But in a time before medicine and before antibiotics, this command had a very practical reason. Right? Contact with an infectious disease, a continual discharge of fluid from your body, or contact with a dead body could have spread an epidemic of infection through the camp. Right? God's people at this time in the wilderness numbered potentially around two to two and a half million people. An infection, an epidemic could have swept through this camp so quickly and killed tens of thousands of people. One of the easiest ways to deal with this is quarantine. By sending them out... God is caring for the many. As hard as that may seem, God in his kindness and pastoral care of his people is practically taking care of many, many people. But now that raises a question for us modern readers. I mean, why doesn't God just heal them? If someone begins to display symptoms, why not present themselves to the priest for God to just go zap and heal them? Wow, belief in God cemented right there. And I think that brings us probably to the main reason why this command is given. It is, as John Calvin says, God not merely acting as a physician. He's not just playing doctor. There is a deeper, more profound theological reason for this command. Uh, Ligon Duncan, one of my favorite preachers, preaching on this passage himself, says that there are actually three purposes to this command. And it shows us that God is holy, God is present, and God has spoken. And I think he's right, so I've borrowed his points. God is holy. First, this command teaches the children of Israel who God is and that he is holy. 
Right? When we speak of God as holy, we are speaking of his utter uniqueness, his distinctiveness, his separateness. God is holy, and in, in his unique separateness, he cannot live among that which is unclean. Right? These laws speak of a God who does not and cannot live with those who are defiled. Right? The Bible has many ways to teach what sin is. And a lot of these overlap. Sin is sometimes taught as transgression, right? the breaking of God's law, doing what he forbids or not doing what he commands. Sin is sometimes taught as rebellion, which is at the heart saying to God that you are not God. I will decide how to live life. Right? It's to take God's place. It is to de-God God. In this passage, we're taught that sin involves defilement, to be made unclean. Now, to be unclean is to stand dirty before God, is to, have, uh, to stand with all of that muck upon you, to stand being ashamed and having done things and thoughts, thoughts, thought thoughts, and become a person utterly offensive and repugnant to God. Right, if I brought Lucas back up here with his dirty shirt, how many of you would willingly want to give him a hug? There you go. It's not because we don't love you, Lucas. Where are you there? Your uncleanness before God becomes a rottenness to a holy and perfect and good and righteous God. And this leads to the second purpose of the command, to remind the children of Israel that God is present among them. It was a massive privilege and joy for God to be among his people, right? Remember earlier in the book of Exodus, after the golden calf incident, God tells Moses to tell the people, you see the land over there? I want you to go in it and take it, but I'm not going with you. I've had enough of you. Now, if you had to choose between dying in a desert or God promising to direct your way and give you the land safely but not be with you, I think most of us, most people would be tempted to take that option. But Moses knows better. He intercedes for the people. How will it be known that you're with us, our God, and distinct from every other people if you don't go with us? Right? Moses knows it doesn't matter how good the land is if God is not there. So God goes with them. Israel has the immense privilege of having God living among them. So because God is present in the camp, they need to be very careful. God is holy, and at the end of verse 3, he says, I dwell in the midst of the camp. A holy God is choosing to live with his people, and he cannot have unclean people around because that will defile him. It's why, it's why all the refuse of the camp, all the ritually defiled, the sacrificial animals, they need to be taken outside of the camp. Because God is present in the camp. You cannot be unclean and defiled in the presence of a holy God. The other day I had a daddy date with my youngest daughter, Ellie. We were in a toy shop, because that's what you do to distract a two-year-old. And we were playing with some magnets. And she, she tried to put the poles, the same poles together, and they repelled. She couldn't touch them together. And then she turned one around, and then she couldn't keep them apart. God is telling Israel, your uncleanness and defilement repels me. God is in their presence and they need to treat God carefully. 
Treat him carefully. Treating him carefully means listening to him as well. All right, the third reason, the reason and purpose this command, uh, of this command is costly because it means listening to him and obeying him. Now imagine for a moment that you had a six-year-old son. He has just had his birthday. You celebrated with great joy and thanksgiving. His life as a part of your family fills your heart with overflowing joy. And then one day he wakes up and he's got a skin rash that will just not go away. One day turns into a week and then the priest comes knocking on your tent. He observes and he examines the skin and he says, he says to you, say goodbye. The law says that he has to go outside the camp now. How would you feel? What if it was your wife, your husband? You listen to what Israel does in verse 4. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp. As the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. Now this is extraordinary. Israel weren't always great at obeying God. And yet, here they were, ready and willing to be obedient. If you want to live by the book, it's going to be hard. Could you have done that? When the Bible asks you to do something that might break your heart, that is, when you, you, that is a test to see whether you are willing to actually live by the book. It is a profound test of faith to obey this law. And remember, it's not just that God says, get rid of these people. But as you read through Leviticus 15, which gives a lot of these laws in a lot more detail, you'll find that it's not just them you have to take care of. You read through it, and you'll find this shocking truth. Uncleanness is contagious. If you've got leprosy or an ongoing discharge, or if you've touched a dead body, then everything you touch is also unclean and needs to be thrown out or burned. Everything that touches defilement becomes defiled as well. Uncleanness and defilement is contagious. But notice something missing in this passage. Even in the Leviticus passages, if you read through them and, and go through them with a fine-tooth comb, if you read through the detailed descriptions of the same issues of leprosy, discharges, and uncleanness in Leviticus 13 to 15, you'll notice one big thing missing. You see, in Leviticus, the priests are given great details as to what to do and what to look for with a person who has a, who's leprosy or a discharge. The law says plenty of what to do when someone becomes unclean. The law also tells the priest what to do if someone becomes healed and becomes clean again. But what is missing is that the law does not tell the priest how to make someone clean. The priest is never given a way to solve the problem. It seems that all a person could do while outside the camp was hope and pray that God would protect them and that God would eventually heal them. Why? 
because there is nobody that can make someone clean but God. Only God can make someone clean. You cannot do it by yourself. Right? None of these wet wipes down here or that brush is going to make you clean. So let's see what we've seen, we've been, where we've been so far, right? These laws, they're given for the practical protection of God's people in the camp. These laws are also given to highlight who God is. He's a holy God, dwelling among his people and cannot be in the presence of anything that is unclean. These laws, along with the detailed instructions in Leviticus, spell out what a priest is to do when someone is unclean, but it does not show them how to make them clean. And we've seen that as well, that defilement is is contagious. Anything that has touched a leper or a person with a discharge or anyone or anything that has touched a dead body, they or it has become also defiled. Defilement is contagious. Now turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We didn't read this out before, but read out read with these passages with me. Right? Notice something that Jesus does. Now, most of us know that Jesus heals people in the Gospels, and he even brings a few people back from the dead. But notice a detail that props up consistently in these healings. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 42. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 42. Let me read. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, this is kneeling to Jesus, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now at that point, the disciples and all the Jews around him would have screamed, Jesus, don't touch him. You will become defiled. But that doesn't happen. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. See, the defilement of the leper doesn't defile Jesus. No, the purity of Jesus purifies the leper. He makes him clean. Flick over to chapter 5, Mark chapter 5. Another incident. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Fair bit of reading here, so please bear with me. Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed with her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? 
His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. You know why she was fearful? It wasn't just because Jesus looked mad. The whole crowd has just discovered that she was unclean. She had a discharge. Anything she touched would become unclean. And there is a massive crowd around Jesus and they know that they have just been made unclean by this woman. But her uncleanness does not defile Jesus. No, the purity of Jesus purifies and heals her. He makes her clean. Keep going in Mark chapter 5, verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and he went in where the child was taking her by the hand, and again, at this point, his disciples and Jairus would have screamed, Jesus, don't touch her. You'll become defiled. But that doesn't happen. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Her uncleanness doesn't defile Jesus. His purity purifies and brings her back to, back to life. He makes her clean. The priests were never told how to make someone clean. And that's because there is nobody that can make someone clean but Jesus. Only Jesus can make someone clean. Thanks to our smartphones and our tablets and computers and TVs, we live in a distraction-filled world. There's always some window to look through. And it seems like the only moment we have to ourselves these days is when we finally put all of that down and plonk our heads on our pillows ready for sleep. And perhaps, for some of us, That's the only time we allow our conscience to prick our hearts and replay our sins and the evil that we have done in our lives. Have you had that moment? You're lying there and the regrets begin to flood over you. That's a good thing you're in bed because you know that if anyone knew what you've said and what you've done, you know the shame you've brought on yourself. Maybe a shame that is so deep that not even Jesus could make you clean. You know what Jesus does? He reaches out to touch your shame 
And you know how we respond? We say, Jesus, don't touch that. Don't touch that. You, you don't know how much shame I have. You don't know what I've done. Don't touch that. Or you'll stain your hand. It will stain you. But he reaches out and he touches it. And he doesn't become unclean. You become clean. Because Jesus has the power and the ability to make you clean. How is it possible? How is it possible for Jesus to make us clean? Our final passage for today, Hebrews chapter 13. In your Bibles again, flick over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, right? What, basically, very, very quickly there, what we have in Jesus is so much better. Verse 11. For the bodies of those animals who, whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Right there. Jesus suffered outside the gate. He was put outside the camp for us. Right? How, is that, how is it that Jesus is able to touch the, clean, the unclean and, and not become unclean himself? How is it that his purity makes them clean? Because he said to his father on this good Friday, I will bear their reproach. I will take their sins. I will take all of their uncleanness in their place outside the camp. On that Friday, on a lonely hill outside of Jerusalem, Jesus bore the punishment for our sins. On that Friday, outside the camp, Jesus was cut off for you. He was cut off so that we might be brought back. So only Jesus can make you clean before God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he can take even a life of the deepest of shame and regret and make it clean? If you do, if you do believe that, would you put your trust and faith in him today? If you're not sure, not a Christian or not sure, and you want to do this, I'd like to invite you to do that. To come and speak to me at the end of the service. Come and speak to Pastor Ben or your friend who brought you here today. Come and trust the only one who can wipe away your shame. But there is one more thing to say. And it's a temptation for all of us sitting here. And we've heard that we, we're all in need of cleansing. We all need help. But the temptation would be to try and do it ourselves. To try and earn it. Last night... Last night, Steve Smith flew back to Australia and gave a very teary and emotional press conference. In it, he owned the cheating scandal and that it was a failure of his leadership. And then he said, I'll do everything I can to make up for my mistake and the damage it has caused. If any good can come of this, if 
there can be a lesson to others, then I hope I can be a force for change. I know I'll regret this for the rest of my life. I'm absolutely gutted. I hope in time I can earn back respect and forgiveness. Smith wants to earn his forgiveness. Now maybe with the Australian public that could happen. But it cannot happen with God. We cannot earn his mercy and forgiveness. There is no amount of good that could be done. Forgiveness with God is not earned. It is received as a gift. The old hymn writer gets it right when, they, when he sings. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Stained by sin, to you I cry. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let me pray. Our great Father in heaven, today is a good day. It is a good day because you show us that you are mighty to make us clean, that your Son has, is, has, is able to make us clean. So help us trust him by faith to never try to earn it, to never, never even think that we could begin to earn it, to pay you back. But help us, Father, to keep trusting Jesus and to live joyfully in response. Thank you, and we, we pray that you'd help us to keep doing this for your glory and our joy on this Good Friday, in Jesus' name. Amen.